uncharted territory in our study this spring through Exodus. And I just want to kind of re- retrace a little bit. We've watched Israel move into Egypt as a small group of about 70 people. And then we watch them leave with close to 2 million people. And so there's been a lot of movement taking place. We've watched God miraculously rescue and redeem them from the bonds of human slavery. Remember, they were enslaved in Egypt. They didn't have a say to what they did. They were forced to work for Egypt. Um, And so their human slavery is broken, all the while pointing and reminding them and us of the more significant redemption from eternal slavery and death. And so as we look at Exodus, rescued and redeemed, we're looking at God taking his people out of Egypt, the picture of human slavery painted clearly there, and then what you're seeing is he's rescuing and redeeming them. We're going to see so many things take place, the Passover, the, sacri- the, the blood sacrifice. We're seeing this all walk through. Uh, Israel hasn't always handled things well. We've watched them push back when the rescue out of slavery became difficult. Remember, they told Moses, what are you doing to us? You're making life miserable. Get out of here. Uh, we've watched them request a return when things got rough or tough on the journey accusing Moses and God of bringing them out to get killed. Are there no graves in Egypt that you've brought us out here? And so they have voiced this concern. When you look at them, it seems like the first hint of pressure, there is a complaint, there's a pushback. Uh, God, however, remains ever faithful, moving and directing his people. He's rescued and redeemed them despite their rebellion and distrust. And we saw how he, speaking of God, brought them to Mount Sinai, where we spoke with them directly. Understand this. Moses gets the Ten Commandments ultimately, but God has already spoken them from the mountain. And so he, he speaks to them, and they then reverence and tremble before him. They make a covenant with God. He gives them the covenant. They confirm that covenant. God was and is among his people, and he was guiding them in what he meant what it meant to be set apart for him, what it means to be holy. And when we're in Leviticus, we'll see conversations about being holy. It goes all the way to to Peter in the New Testament, be holy for I am holy. That continues all the way through the Old Testament on into the New Testament. And so we see here, what does it mean to be God's set apart people? Now we're at the final steps of the book of Exodus. Israel is still at Mount Sinai. They're going to leave at the end, in essence, setting up some of their journeying. They've asked Moses now to be the middleman between them and God. It's not inappropriate. Their fear, as they hear God speak, they see that, and remember the mountain is described in terms we can understand because they couldn't describe exactly what was taking place. And so it's smoke, it is thunder, it is lightnings, but that's not exactly what it was. It was more than that. It's just that that is how God communicates with us so we can understand it. And so we find that God's holiness They understand it here. They understand that God's holiness is not a casual thing. And so they are fearful in an appropriate way. In our culture, and especially, and obviously in our Christian culture, we see it in secular culture, we are very cavalier about God. We're very cavalier about how God is holy. That's why people think of God as their buddy. And that is just the wrong way to think of God. God is holy. He's far above who we are that he condescends to be a part of us and among us and to redeem us, that just points to his magnificence. We've used it as an elevation of humanity when it's supposed to be a reason we worship God. The Israelites aren't struggling with that. They get it. God has made that perfectly clear to them. And then we find Moses now going to the top of Mount Sinai, and he's gone for 40 days. Now, he's a week waiting, and then God calls him all the way up. We've seen them go partially up the mountain and back down, and partially up the mountain and back down. There's movement up and down Mount Sinai. This is that final draw all the way to the top, where Moses is going to receive not only the Ten Commandments carved by God, and there's a lot of indication that both tablets contained all ten, one as God's and one as the people's. They're stored together. Um, But he's getting all the other covenant instruction, the tabernacle instructions, all the things that we've kind of read about. And sadly, we see something in Israel that even though they heard God speak audibly to them, they have heard him speak from the mountain. He gives them the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words vocally, where Moses stands with the people. They've heard him do that. They've experienced his holiness. 
and power. They understand the magnitude of being his people and committing to his covenant. Remember, they covenanted to do what God says. We realize that all can be, and I'll show you the word quickly, forgotten, which is chapter 32. Let me read the first part of 32. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us, For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And you see how temporally focused they are? They're speaking of where is Moses. They're not thinking of where is God. And he's gone for a short period of time. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and of your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a, and this is important, graving tool. What does that tell you? Who carved the gold? Aaron did. <laughs> He's a liar in the end. He says, I, 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 I just threw the gold in the fire and bam, a beautiful calf came out. No, Aaron, there's a graving tool. It's there. After he had made it into a molten calf and they said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Moses is gone 40 days, and the people just write him off. They pressure Aaron to make a god, an idol, that they can then worship after the custom of the world. And if you notice something towards the end of of verse 6, let me read this. And they rose up early on the morning, on the morrow, and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and rose up to play. They're not playing spike ball. They're not playing volleyball. They're not playing soccer. They're not engaging in spear throwing. When it says they rose up to play, it means they went out and ate, got drunk, and engaged in immorality, revelry. This was a drunken party where they did what the heathens do, what they have watched Egypt do, what the other Canaanite nations do. They are, remember, to be set apart. They've committed to being set apart. They've recognized the holiness of God 40 days, and they are now purposefully breaking the covenant that they've made with God. By the way, they made that covenant 40 days ago. It's a month and a few days. So God actually tells Moses to get down, and he tells Moses that he, God, wants to destroy the people. Look at 32.10. Now therefore let me alone, this is God speaking to Moses, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. God says, I want to go ahead and consume them. Now, one thing you're going to notice, Moses is sent as a mediator, And you're going to see that Moses is going to intercede for the people. And there's going to be a word that says God relents. And and some people look at this and say, well, God changed his mind. God didn't change his mind. God is seeing if Moses is going to petition for the people, and he does. His heart is for the people, and his heart actually is for God's ultimate glory. Look at 11 through 13. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? He speaks to what God has done. Wherefore, should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. In other words, don't, don't do this. Don't consume them. Remember... Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, the people are pretty good, God. They're a decent folk. They're all right. They're a little bit off. He doesn't appeal to God on the merits of the people. You want to know why? The people have no what? Merit. They're actually not worthy of being redeemed. Moses instead appeals to God's glory. God, they're your people. You rescued them. I don't want the Egyptians to say you destroyed them just because you wanted to bring them out and then just wipe them off the earth. And he focuses on God's glory 
And then he closes with a focus on God's promise. And I put a question mark here. I wonder how much of our intercession does the same. How much of our intercession for God's involvement, for God's movement, involves God's glory and his direct promises? Most people, including myself, we pray his promises in a very manipulative way. God, you said you would take care of me, so take care of me. God said you would work on my behalf, work on my behalf. I see preachers doing this. I'm praying that God will bring an increase. I'm, and it's very manipulative of God. The increase is for yourself. The increase is for your glory. The increase is for your financial pocket. And we see that, sadly, plaguing uh, one of the largest Protestant denominations. We see that they made decisions to pad their pocket to protect their finances. See, Moses doesn't appeal to God that way. He appeals to God based on God's glory and God's promises to Abraham and Isaac that he would multiply them. And it says that God relents. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. And if you read that wrong, you think God's going to do something wrong to his people. And you say, well, God is immutable. That means God doesn't change and God does not change. And then people always go to this and say, well, God repented. He changed his mind. Why is it described that way? It's so we can understand it. It's called an anthropomorphism, which is we're showing God's response in light of how we work and function. We can't understand the sovereignty of God. We can know it, but can't quite grasp it. And that's what we're seeing here. What you see is Moses praying for God's people and for God's glory. And you see that God again proves Moses's mettle in this scenario, because God, of course, is going to honor his name and honor his promises. And what I love about it is it's a lesson to us and all of Israel on how do you approach God for his glory and based on his promises. Now, God had made the way for mediation. They had chosen their mediator. And let's be honest, they chose well in picking Moses. And Moses now showed his heart for the people and that his heart was aligned with God's heart. We're going to actually get to the point in um, Numbers where Moses hits a rock and God doesn't let him enter the promised land. I don't know if you've read that story. And doesn't it feel like God is really severe with Moses, like one mistake? But it thwarted God getting the glory and Moses took it instead. And with great responsibility, right, with great power comes great responsibility. With this connection to God, that, that error of stealing God's glory, Moses pays with not going into the promised land and recognizes it. But you see how close Moses is aligned here with God's heart and for God's glory. Uh, Moses gets down and ends up breaking the tablets of stone. He crushes the statue, which is fascinating, grinds it up and puts it in their water. He confronts Aaron, who lies about his direct involvement. What does Aaron say? The people pressured me. I threw gold in the fire and bam, out came calves. Right? Aaron doesn't always shine the brightest and uh, what's interesting is Moses calls on those who would take the Lord's side, verse 25. And when we saw the people were naked, by the way, just to understand the kind of revelry they're in, they're running around unclothed, engaging in all types of immorality. For Aaron had made them naked under shame among their enemies. And Moses stood in the gate and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And they see the tribe of Levi coming together for the Lord's glory. He calls on them, they answer the call, and they go with swords, killing the rebellious idolaters. And then what we see next is that Moses confronts the people. Look at 32, 30. And it came to pass on the morrow, the next day, that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I'll go, I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. Moses admits to the Lord the sin of the people and pleads for forgiveness. He says something fascinating. He says, if you won't forgive their sins, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Which, by the way, the book of life. I love God's answer. God says, whoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. And I want you to recognize something in that answer. God remains forever just and right. 
God is not going to have Moses do what one, he cannot do, which is die for his people. And two, he's not going to put the punishment of the people onto Moses because he's just and he's right. Now, you move forward. God does not destroy them, but, and this is a huge but, says now angels will lead them and he will plague them. Verse 35, Lord plague the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. And he says, mine angel, the verse before it, shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. In other words, God has said something. There's something that's taking place in this, in this calf, the quickly forgotten. He says, I'm not leading you anymore. And what's interesting is I, I put down as an action step as we move to the next chapters is, is this, how quickly we are pressured by the world around us. I want you to think about that. How fast do you cave to the world's pressure? 40 days is all it took, 40 days for them. How quickly we turn to the gods of this world and duplicate their worship. It permeates it. One of the things I read one time about the church in Russia, when the wall fell, they had the worst persecution. It's called the Western Church and all its materialism plagued the church in Russia. What once was a much purer church then became consumed in worldliness. It just, and it almost, not to say it happened overnight, but it happened so quickly it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Aaron caved to the people seemingly without much of a fight. Make us gods. Okay, bring me your earrings. You see nothing in Scripture that says you shouldn't do this. This isn't smart. Guys, this is not the way we should go. And I've put here, and, and, and I, I quote this from a commentator, we're more like Aaron than we want to think. Because every time we read the story, who do you think you are? Moses. We're all coming off of Mount Sinai for God's glory, and the reality is that most of us are Aaron's, caving to the pressure of the people to do what we know is wrong. And I put here, does the seeming, and it is only seeming, delay of the Lord a cause for your doubt? Is your faith rocked by 40 days? And I use the 40 days as just the kind of delay figure. Does it drive us to the easy to see, controllable worship found from this world? Because that's what they went for. We want a God that we can see that moves when we move it. Because guess what a golden calf doesn't do? It doesn't walk on its own. It doesn't grow. It doesn't stink. It doesn't change. It doesn't demand anything of you. It's just there with you. And you can worship it or not worship it. You can have a big old party. You can not have a party. You do whatever you want. What they made was an idol, and all they're worshiping is themselves. They made themselves the God. And I wonder how much of our lives are quickly forgetting what God has done, forgetting his holiness, forgetting who he is, so that we can worship a God of our own making that doesn't look anything like God. By the way, I love that. We pretend like we worship Jesus. When people say, well, I, I, you know, I worship a Jesus of love, and I would say you worship an idol of your own making that you've called Jesus. That doesn't make him Jesus. That doesn't make him the real God. It's an idol because it's a God of your own construction. It is as fake as the golden calf. I put here, take a minute to examine yourself and see if there's a golden calf sitting on the altar of your life. Have you, Aaron, carved a golden calf instead of worshiping the holy God that is a little bit difficult to understand because he's far above us, that does make us tremble because he is holy, and instead we say, wow, I can't deal with that God. I ought to get a God that I can handle. I got a God that can go play football with me. I got a God that can hang out with me. It's just ridiculous. When God is omnipresent, he's obviously everywhere. You don't have to ask him along. He's there. But when we come up with a God that we say walks with us through our life and into our sins, because that's what oftentimes it is, that's no God. That's your God. That's your idol. That's your lie. And so examine your life to see if there's a golden calf. Now, this is what I love about our Lord and Savior. Despite glaring failures, the next two chapters 
show us how they were gloriously renewed. 33 through 35, the first part. God says to move out and his angel will lead them. He's not going to be with them because otherwise he would have to destroy them. And here's something I'm thankful for. Upon hearing that, the people mourn, which is what they should do. Because now they recognize what God is saying. I don't want to be among you anymore. I will send my angel to lead. But what will most people do on earth today? Oh, good, we'll take an angel. The people, at least in this moment, start mourning. They take off their decorations and jewelry, anything that would have elevated them, anything that would have made them, why do you wear jewelry, right? You, you do it to look nice. I'm wearing a ring. I'm wearing another ring. I've got a watch. I even put another watch on and switched watches, okay? How vain can you get, right? You put on jewelry because you think it makes you look nice. You buy jewelry because you like it, right? They're removing anything that would elevate them. They are responding correctly. And Moses goes and meets with God. He goes on to a tent of meeting. By the way, this is not the tabernacle. When you read through Exodus, you're going to hear the tent of meeting and the tent of meeting. Yes, the tent of meeting refers to the tabernacle. But Moses had a tent of meeting before the tabernacle that was outside of the camp where he would meet with God and Joshua would stay and guard it. So when you're reading through Exodus, don't get caught up in that. They haven't built the tabernacle yet. So this tent of meeting is where Moses speaks with God. And you see Joshua's role. Think about this. When Moses wasn't in the tent of meeting, he guarded the tent that Moses met God in to prevent a sin of the people of coming to that tent of meeting, creating an idol out of that and saying, I'm going to go in and talk to God. And so you see his responsibility and you also see how he's being set up to be the leader of the people in the future. He meets with God, this is Moses, as one does with a friend, it says. He asks God to guide them directly, Thirty-three, fourteen, And he said, because Moses goes and says, Lord, don't, don't, let, don't let them not be led by you. And then in 14, he says, my presence, this is God, shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. He asks God to lead him, and God says yes. He then asks to see God's glory, which he ends up seeing in part, when he gets the new stone tablets that God writes upon. If you look at 34, 4 through 9, God tells him to carve two new tablets. He does, and he hewed two tablets of stone, like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hands the two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with them there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, if you're not repentant, he's not clearing your name. He's massively forgiving. And then the next phrase is, but he's not going to just wipe the slate clean on someone who doesn't repent is not one of his people. goes on visiting the iniquity of the father upon the children, upon the children's children, upon the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for thine inheritance. And you see this, God's already promised to be among them. And when he hears God talk, His response is not, wow, I got to see or hear God again. He is bowing down, and what is he saying? Forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive us. He's responding correctly again in submissive obedience. Our world does not like the thought of submitting to God. They hate it. That's why they don't want a God. Why in the world do these, I would say, brilliant morons who are studying for their doctorate and then want to deny God. Why do, they, why do they keep driving to deny God? Even when the science doesn't work. By the way, it doesn't work. It really doesn't. You have to go crazy to try to make it work. Why are they so fixed on this? Even when all of their work would make sense if they would just agree there's a God. Why will they not agree there's a God? Because if there's a God, you have to submit to him and they want to be God and they don't want to submit to him. God demands submission. And then God renews with the people. Look at 10, 34, 10. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all thy people. I will do marvels such as not been done in all the earth. 
nor in any nation, and all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. In other words, I'm going to do what I promised. God reminds Moses to to remind the people to follow the commands given. If you go through the rest of this chapter, he goes to the things. No false gods. Keep the feast. Moses is to record all this. If you go all the way to 34, 27 through 28. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. And he did neither eat bread nor drink water, and he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So Moses is again gone 40 days and 40 nights. The difference is the people aren't engaging in revelry at this time, but there's a 40-day waiting period. After that, he is told in 35, 1 through 3, to keep the Sabbath. And Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said unto them, These are the words which the Lord hath commanded that you should do them. He explains the words. That's what he's recorded. Then he goes on. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day there shall be to you an holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whosoever doth work therein shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your habitations upon the Sabbath day. Now, in the process of all this, Moses saw the back of God. His face shone because of it, so much so that a veil was placed over his face when he talked with the people. Talk about reflecting God's glory. You have to put a, your face shines so brightly that from then on out, his face was covered in public. He removed it when he spoke with God. He covered his face when he talked to people. But recognize this, God graciously renewed the people. When Moses is on the mountain, even after God has promised his presence, he is still on his knees in submissive begging for forgiveness for the people. Why? You recognize that he, God, is holy and how sinfully horrible they are. And yet God is the one who graciously renews the people. God was the faithful one. God never changed and God never negated his promises. And then notice the relationship Moses had with God, how he reverenced God and how close he was to God. And I put two questions here as we look at this. And the idea of being graciously renewed, you see who God is in this movement. He is a holy God, so their, their, their sin had to be punished and had to be dealt with, but he renews them because he is a gracious God. And I put here, are we thankful for the mercy and grace of God? Because we oftentimes look at our redemption and feel that we deserve it instead of recognizing that Christ dying on the cross for our sins was God's mercy and grace at its height at the most visible format? And then, do we desire a relationship with God like Moses had? And I say that, and I know everyone's like, oh yeah. I want you to recognize something. It altered his life completely. That he put a veil in front of his face when he talked to people. In other words, it wasn't normal looking. His relationship with God changed who he was. Do we desire a relationship with God that changes who we are so that we reflect his glory so brilliantly that we'd have to have a veil in front of us? That's our calling as believers to do that. Now, with the horrible aside of Israel's sin addressed, so this whole golden calf rejecting the covenant, redoing the covenant, I hope you can see we're moving rapidly through this. Now we move to the tabernacle, we return. We, we spent chapters before discussing what we would do and how we would build this. And now we go to what we see as, as a tabernacle correctly constructed. And this encompasses a lot of chapters. And based on time, we can't dive into the construction of the tabernacle. It is very repetitive. You've read it all. Because what happens is is from chapters 35 to 39, we watch the construction of the tabernacle, its furniture and the priestly garments. And this is the really critical thing, just as God commanded. Like God said, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, but it might as well say it, 100% the way God said to do it, they do it. No variance. 
Now, before we get started on that tabernacle, we do see this, that the people gave. Look at verse 35. 4 through 9 talks about their giving and then 29. It says, And Moses spake unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord. Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it. An offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet, and fine linen and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and badger skins, and, and the shittim wood, and oil for the light, and spices for anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, and onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate. In other words, bring us everything of value to build the tabernacle with. Go to verse 29 of this. The children of Israel brought a willing offering unto the Lord, every man and woman whose heart made them willing to bring for all manner of work, which the Lord had commanded to be made by the hand of Moses. And what's interesting, that word willing, to give willingly, when you translate it, it means to give hilariously. Now, when someone is laughing hilariously, what kind of laughter is that? It's almost hysterical, right? There's with almost reckless abandon. So to give willingly is to give, which we talk about in the New Testament, not to give grudgingly, but we give from a willing heart, a a desiring heart. And I know a bunch of people that will say this, well, I'm not willing, so I'm not going to give. When you're not willing, you've got a heart problem. So actually, God doesn't want you to give if you're not willing But that doesn't mean you just ignore that part of your life. It means that you've got an issue with your heart because the believer gives willingly, hilariously. That means liberally. That means not stingily. It means you're not squeezing the penny so the copper comes off kind of idea. One, you should be keeping the pennies for yourself and giving God the dollars. But the fact of the matter is, is that's what liberally or hilariously means. The people manifest worship with their giving. So much was given that they had to be told to stop. Look at verse, chapter 36, 5 through 6. And they spake unto Moses, this is the workman, and said, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. And Moses gave commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained, restrained from bringing. Because they gave so hilariously that there was more there than they could be used. And so Moses said, you can't give anymore. But they used the word restrained. Now, I put this down. I wonder if you've ever been in a church today where that's happened, ever. Anyone here been in a church where they stood up and said, look, stop giving. You guys are giving too hilariously. It's too much. Notice something, and this is, you'll hopefully see this at City Light. They were not manipulated into giving at all. You look at the, the world's giving nonprofits, the culturally popular ones, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. And what do you notice now in the news? They coerced and they used and manipulated society and the occurrence in society to get people to give. And they've all misused the money and it's all been a mess. But they, they, they twisted to give. We don't ask, quote unquote, for giving in the way the world does. Because the believer is supposed to give hilariously, willingly abundantly. When we mention percentages, it helps us think, doesn't it? But that's really all it's for. There's no mandate in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. By the way, the tithe, which is what we we oftentimes work from, I always say don't give less than a tithe. Don't give less than 10%. The Israelite people gave way more than 10%. It was 36.5%. So if you really want to go Old Testament on us, our church would have a budget that went through the roof, I'm betting. All right? Because... 36 some percent was given. But the New Testament call for giving was willingly, this hilarious giving, this abundant giving. But let's be honest. You know what abundant is. I don't have to do your math for you. You know how hard the dollar leaves your hand, how little it is compared to what you spend on something else. And again, 
None of this was coerced because here's the reality to giving, and this is critical. And I actually hope to do a, a, a one-part sermon kind of building on spiritual boot camp on giving. Giving is an act of worship and thanksgiving. It is not a buy-your-way-out-of-hell feel. It's not to alleviate your guilt in any way, shape, or form. All of those are horrible motives to give. Because I'll tell you this, if you're giving out of guilt, well, guess what? The Catholic Church has perfected that. It is, you cannot beat the thousands of years they've worked that one well, but it's not biblical giving. That's not how God wants his people to give to him. An act of worship and thanksgiving. That's why it overflows, because it comes from a willing heart. I put here, are you giving that way? And here's a a really critical question. If you're not a hilarious giver, does it indicate a problem of the heart? I believe strongly that as an individual believer, that's something you're to evaluate yourself. It's not for the church to stand up and say, well, Joy, let me look at your numbers and we'll let you know if you're a hilarious giver or not. I don't think we have the ability to write down when a hilarious giver is there or not. The only thing we could help you do is tell you if you're even playing the game, but that's not our role. You are to evaluate your heart and know if you're a hilarious giver. We're to teach you what it means to be a hilarious giver, to be a willing giver. You are to discern your heart and know whether you're a hilarious giver or not. Giving is not about the church you're at, by the way. It's about God and how expressive you are toward him. If it kills you to put money in the offering, I would say this based on the New Testament, don't put it in, but you need to go back and examine your heart. Are you giving? The people gave, and then I put the people made. Look at 35.10, and I'm already going to get running out of time, so I'm going to stop reading and just start summarizing here. 35.10, 35.30, and 34-35, and 36.8. And, and I'm just going to summarize this. God gave wisdom to the craftsmen, specifically the men that headed up the work, and we watched the workers dive in, and I love the words he uses, so I'm highlighting it. Wisely and carefully they built. But it's all these crafts, like people who make tents, who sew, who engrave, who carve, who work with metal and silver and all these things. And and I put here, their gifts and talents were used for the Lord's work. It was used to build his tabernacle. And I put as a question, are your gifts and talents being put to use for the Lord's work? Because they gave financially and then they gave from their skill set. And you say, well, Kenny, it's not the same because we don't build tabernacles and we don't work with skins. And, and I, I think one way your skill can be used for the Lord is your sphere of influence at your work used to proclaim the gospel, to elevate his name and his glory. That's one way to use your skill. Because you know what's interesting? Everyone here that has a job has an entry point into this world that collectively as a church we don't have. There's places you can walk that I can't walk. If you teach in the Culpeper Public School system here, I am not allowed to enter that building. They don't want me to. I've asked because I wanted to get on campus. I wanted to be where the students are. We've talked about this. Theron and I have wanted to go. So can we hold a Bible study? Can we, we, don't want, we don't want you to show up. If you're going to show up at an elementary school, you got to get permission eons before that from a parent to do something. You can't go have lunch with them. But if you're a teacher on campus, guess who's on campus every day? And they beg you to get in. They're they're crying if you don't show up as a teacher, right? They need their teachers there. You have an ability, right? A skill set. And so if you're in that classroom, you have an opportunity to use your skills for the Lord. Whether you work in retail, Eric, with with the job running, um, I'm trying to think, Bye Bye Baby, did I get it right? I was about to say Amazon, but I'm just kidding. (laughs) We literally looked up something on Amazon. It was an Amazon basic item, and we chose not to buy it for fear that Eric would beat us. So we bought the non-Amazon basic because we're just that we fear him this much. You know, it's like he did not do this. The enemy there, so we 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 sneak in there, but you know we're still nervous. But Eric has an in with his workers that I don't have. I can't walk in, and all that. You just spread that out. That's one way to use it in a different way. The reality is this, God designed his tabernacle and Moses and the people built it 
exactly as he commanded. And I'm switching gears a little bit here. There was 100% compliance. When we serve the Lord and do his work, it is done 100% as he says to do so. And listen to this. Anything else would be disobedience. There is no good enough. There is no 90%. There's no 95%. You do it God's way or you've disobeyed. Period. Say, well, man, that's just tough. Well, here's what's interesting. As parents, do you expect 100% obedience? I think we all do. I can say this. If you accept less than 100%, you got disobedience and you're going to have trouble. And it only gets worse as they get older. So... We expect that from our own children, but then we look to God and say, come on, God, be happy with at least something. 75% is good enough. There is no good enough with God. Compliance is 100%. Obedience is either obedience or it's disobedience. Now, their obedience and complete fulfillment of what was required results in now chapter 40, and I've got seven minutes. It's going to be gloriously consecrated. The tabernacle set up 41 through 2. They set it up. All the furnishings are put in and around it. It is anointed. And then Aaron and his sons, that's verses 13 through 16, are anointed. So they've built everything. They're, they're bringing it together. They're consecrating it. What follows in verses 17 through 33 of chapter 40 is the details of how Moses set up the tabernacle as it was supposed to be arranged, closing with the outer area. So inner to out, set up. Then the most critical thing takes place. God inhabits the tabernacle. Look at chapter 40, 34 through 38. And I am going to read those to close off Exodus. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation. And if you want to highlight something, highlight that. Remember when God spoke from the mountain and Moses was moved with the people and he is now one of the people and God is speaking and you see the distinctiveness of God. Notice how they never were supposed to worship Moses. By the way, what do the Pharisees constantly throw in Jesus' face? We're Abraham's children. We're Moses. You're nothing. We like... Moses was never supposed to be worshipped. When, when they see the transfiguration, what does Peter do with his big mouth? Let's build a tabernacle for one, two, three. And God says, honor my son. Because what? He gets caught up. And, and but Moses here, on purposely, you see suddenly there's a distinctiveness to what God is going to do. That's why it's written there by Moses under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He can't go in because it's what? Full. And it's filled with God's glory. He is going to worship as the rest of the people will worship. And then we get some detail. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. And now we get God's movement connected to the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and the fire was on it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What's fascinating to me is God inhabits the tabernacle. Moses can't even come near it. God's presence is among the people as promised. God is fulfilling his promise and he's guiding the nation of Israel. They move when he moves, they stop where he stops. What fascinates me is when you read through commentators, there are some that view the close of Exodus as a dark spin. Well, move when God talks, we go, we, we stay when God stays, we move when God moves. And they kind of view this as like a reciprocal thing to the sin. And I think they've missed the point completely. I think Exodus ends on the best note that you could ever have. God is among us and we move when he moves and we stop where he stops. And what could be better than that kind of life? So the book of Exodus ends, in my opinion, on an optimistic note. You've just walked through the wickedness that you've fallen in. God has redeemed you yet again, rescued proven that he's faithful, just, merciful, gracious, and now he is honoring and we see a gloriously consecrated tabernacle and God's presence is there. Despite their flimsy promises, despite their rebellion and doubts, God remains steadfast. And he always does. 
He is faithful and he has rescued and redeemed his chosen people. What I hope we can see in Exodus is this, God working. Throughout the whole book, the point has been his activity on their behalf. He is the one remaining true. He is the one redeeming. He is the one granting mercy and grace to them. If you think about it, go all the way back to Exodus and just think in your mind quickly, just close your eyes. He moves them to Egypt and protects them. He grows them as a nation. He pulls them out of slavery in a very miraculous way. He sacks Egypt. He solves their issue at the Red Sea. He moves on providing water. He moves on providing manna. He moves on at Mount Sinai, gives them their law personally. We send Moses up. They're sinning all through this thing. We see this wrestling, and constantly it's God working. Actually, we're going to come back to this in our anxiety study. We're going to actually look at the Red Sea and the manna and recognize how they responded in fear and how we're supposed to learn from that and understand how we deal with our fear and anxiety and how they should have turned to God. So that's actually going to be a principle we're going to pull out in that study. And then two, looking at this, what do you notice about the people? God is constantly faithful. The people tend to rebel, to forget, to relish the past and temporal. Let's learn to see their faults in us. Turn from that and truly be grateful and worship the one true God who uniquely rescues and redeems his children. That's it for Exodus. Uh, Next fall, we're going to actually be studying a book that is the least read in Christianity. The church least read book is Leviticus. It was the first book that any Jewish child would read. The most read book for the nation of Israel, the least read book for the church. So we're going to dive into Leviticus, understanding their laws, it's kind of like a pause. So if you're thinking Exodus, push the pause button. You've got a month, you're going to get Leviticus, and then you're moving on. The story goes Exodus to Numbers, really. So we're going to actually look at all these laws and covenants that tie in here and work that in the fall. This summer is our open church. And so I've explained this multiple times. I want you guys to understand it well, and then I can say, hey, talk to the Wednesday crowd. They know what's going on. Um, it's an anxiety study for the summer. I have four copies of the book up here so that you can take a picture and you can order one. It's a workbook. It's a study book, all right? So order it. Um, We're going to be going through seven studies. Here's what I want you to realize. And and he writes this. This isn't going to suddenly, at the end of this, you're going to be like, never anxious again. I'm a superhero, right? What it's going to do is kickstart where we can deal with fear and anxiety in a biblical way. Um, What is going to happen is we're going to get together for open church, six o'clock. We're going to have a meal together. So it's going to be brats or hot dogs or hamburgers or meatball subs or pizza. You name it, we're going to have a meal together or hang out, play soccer, talk, chat. Seven o'clock, we'll come in here as adults. The teens will watch the kids, babysit the babies. And we're going to take some, about an hour and 15 minutes. I'm going to do about a 15-minute talk just to kind of launch the study. And then we're going to split up into many small groups. So we're going to spread out over church. We're going to be down in the kids' zone at the tables, a group in here, a group in the sanctuary. We'll go to the basement. And here's what I want to mention. There's two types of groups you can be in. You might say, I'd like to be in a group with my spouse, and so you'll sign up for a couple's group. But we're also going to have small groups of male and female. So if you say, hey, I'd like to walk through this journey with other men or other women, you list that down there. And we're going to place you in a small group. So we're going to still be doing our small group idea after that lesson splitting up because we found that when the group's smaller you'll be able to talk more and work through it so we're going to work through the study together grow together my goal is this i hope that we move the needle for people to build a foundation of how to biblically deal with anxiety and worry and fear my second thing is and this is something i hope city light keeps growing in um, the church is competent to counsel. It's actually the name of a book by Jay Adams, but if the idea is this. We are able to help each other. The church is able to lift up, pick up, counsel themselves. Scripture tells us that. This is hopefully also going to equip you to help the body of Christ. Um, and as I've mentioned publicly many times, uh, anxiety is that a 40% of teens are anxious. That's, that's means four out of 10 teens will admit they're anxious. 
That means six out of 10, not necessarily are not anxious, they just haven't told anyone they're anxious. So I just want you to understand the numbers. Depression and anxiety is on a huge upswing in our society. Um, we've not dealt with it correctly. When you live in a world consumed with themselves, the reality is you're gonna get anxious and you're gonna get depressed. That doesn't mean everything you encounter in the church, anxiety and depression, is a result of some sin or some selfishness. It just wants you to pinpoint that the world has a high need and our churches have a high need. And we are, as a congregation, going to become equipped to reach our community. And so I'm hoping to see us grow that way to be a help. Um, we're going to do the prayer sheets through the summer, as I mentioned. Uh, if you'll email Eric or fill out a Connect card on Sundays, uh, that'll be great. I, I want to encourage you to order this book. We'll start after Vacation Bible School, and my intention is that you reach week one and answer the questions as best you can. Uh, I mention this, and I'll say this over and over, so I'm sorry you're going to hear it more than once. When you answer the questions, don't second-guess it. So I'm going to read a question. What fears and worries can you locate immediately? And everyone's like, what fear should I admit to? Well, <laughs> be honest with that. I'm afraid that I will fail as a father. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my temper. I'm afraid that I'll lose all my money. That's what, just, you're answering it. And I teach on it beforehand. Hopefully that'll help uh, spur on some more discussion. And we're going to go through those because our first step is going to be identifying fear and anxiety. And so just work through week one, and then we'll do this study uh, through the summer and enjoy fellowship together. And so after we're done our study around 8.15, 8.30, we're going to go back outside. We'll turn the lights on, and we're just going to enjoy what God has provided playground for kids, no adults on there or teens, so I'm sorry if you want to slide down there. There's soccer games and volleyball games, and you can shoot basketball over there, and you can play spike ball, or you can do what I'm going to do, and that's sit around sipping a cup of iced tea with a lemon in it, watching kids play. That's, that's what my work is going to be. Maybe I'll play some basketball, but I've been using this bum shoulder now, and I'll probably keep milking it until uh, the end of time. And so... Uh, that's my, my sporting life is over, and I'm going to say, oh, I don't know about my shoulder. I don't want to throw it out, you know. But uh, either way, you can hang out and talk, look at kids, shoot some hoops. There's nothing like playing basketball with some of the Iwana kids. When will you get a chance to do that? Now. So you might have a super skill that kids could use. Hey, why don't you teach them sh to shoot, do whatever they need to do. We're going to have a good time fellowshipping all summer long, but also growing together. So I hope you can look at that. And again, anything on the prayer sheets, uh, connect cards or Eric.